book that blew my mind. I read a lot for the show, and this book really stood out to me. It is called Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic, How Trauma Works and How We Can Heal From It. It is by Paul Conti, MD. Dr. Paul Conti is adept at helping people untangle complex problems, and he also happens to be a psychiatrist. Dr. Conti incorporates a holistic view of each client or patient into his work, knowing the far-reaching impacts trauma can have upon the systems and communities in which an individual resides, works, and serves. In addition to clinical treatment, he provides personal, business, and legal consulting services. Dr. Conti is a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine. He completed his training at Stanford and Harvard, where he served as chief resident. Dr. Conti is the author of Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic, a book that brings his valuable insights about how we can collectively heal from trauma's effects into a larger audience. Dr. Conti, welcome to Health Power. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I don't know anyone who hasn't been through some type of trauma. And sadly, it, it really does affect every part of their life. And you put it so beautifully in your book. And I, I was just absolutely, absolutely blown away. You write, quote, the diversity of human problems I have witnessed in my life and career is nearly infinite. That being said, one reason stands out for the vast majority of these problems. The underlying reason is trauma. Talk to us about that. And, and then tell us about uh, your brother, Jonathan, and, and the trauma that you and your family endured. Sure, sure. You know, as I started to do more and more clinical work um, and to see people from all walks of life, and this was many years ago, I, I noticed that often the problem that I was treating, if it was depression, anxiety, substance use, I mean, the, the whole variation of issues that, that can afflict us, at the root of most of those problems was a trauma that a person had suffered. It could have been acute or it might be a chronic trauma over time or even a vicarious trauma that really overwhelmed the person's coping skills and then left them different as they moved forward. Now, since that time, 20 years or so ago, when I started practicing and noticing this, the science has come along, come a long way, right, in, in really understanding what happens in us, how our brains are different going forward, that it's not a soft concept of, oh, everything negative changes us and everyone should win a medal or that, that sort of thing, right? It's that things happen to us that are truly traumatic, that overwhelm us, and then our brains change and there's yes. a whole cascade of guilt and shame and fear um, and changes to our conceptions of self and changes to our memories that, that happen after trauma. So it's that observation and, and the continued observation over time and the science coming into line with the clinical observations that really led me to to write the book. Um, and in addition to, to seeing these problems in people that I've been taking care of, they are also so clearly present in my own life. Um, and my reflections on the loss of my brother who died by suicide um, in 1994, so long time ago, but the, the impact um, on me and on my family was so deep and um, and changed, you know, how I felt about myself and whether I could make my way in the world and how I felt about the world and, you know, whether it would give me a fair chance or whether it would just be sort of nothing but hostile. It had really shifted and my self-care had shifted. Like so many things had changed for the worse. And, and of course, I was feeling 
so much guilt and so much shame uh, about it and just so much confusion about it. And it was ultimately through the help from other people. This was long before I went to medical school. Um, it was through the help from other people and ultimately professional help that I, I was able to get myself back on track. Um, but certainly my own experience then fit so perfectly with what I was seeing in the majority of people that I was taking care of. And, and it's really that confluence that drove home to me wow like this is this is an important topic and and it's only become more important in the last couple of years all the things that have happened in the world around us so it really has just come to the forefront in my mind and i wanted to spread the word well i'm so glad that you did you write about shame and you just mentioned it and shame seems to keep people from moving forward or getting help or having this kind of guilt and shame kind of combo talk to us about that sure so Shame is what is technically called an affect, you know, which, which just means that it's created in us without our choice, right? So there are things that happen in us in a reflexive way, and feeling guilty, feeling ashamed after a trauma is so prominent and so reflexive that we almost like take it for granted, like, well, that's what happens, right? And and we don't realize that it is so toxic, right? It's what paves the way for all sorts of mental health problems. It paves the way for all sorts of physical health problems. Because, of course, our mental health and physical health are tied. It paves the way for negative life changes. Um, and often we don't question it. We don't say, oh, now I feel ashamed of this thing when like something happened to me. And is that leading me to hide it, right? It's the It creates the opposite of what we need to do, which is to think about what's going on inside of us and put words to what's going on inside of us, you know, to, in our own minds or on paper, right, or talking to other people. But instead, we often even hide it from ourselves, where a person doesn't even want to think, you know, that thought because it raises so much shame. And it's this that causes us to do the exact opposite, right? Instead yeah. of of shedding light on it, you know, thinking about it, having new thoughts and ideas, right, we tend to tuck it away in ourselves where it then really festers. And this is how you can see a trauma and its results from years and years ago, having been so impactful in a person's life, you know, 24-7 impact for years, right, without the person really putting at all words to that, right, or even admitting to themselves, well, this is what is happening to me, often because the guilt and shame comes along with a sense of impossibility, right, that, well, this is what yeah. it is now, and it can't get any better, and if I share it with people, they'll only recoil from me, and, and you know, it just leads us to hide inside what we most need to share, and that's one of the greatest evils of trauma and of the brain changes that happen inside of us. Yeah, I mean, it, I just think what's so difficult is people, a lot of people still don't want to talk about it. I mean, I think it is less stigmatized. I think a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but I feel like in my own life, I see people who have gone through a lot of trauma, getting therapy, talking about it, realizing like, oh, this is why I this, I have this eating disorder. This is why I have anxiety. Yes. But then the people in their lives, some of them are still like, well, why aren't you over this by now? They don't understand how it changes your brain. And that's why your book, it really needs to be read by everybody so people can get some support and understanding as well. Yeah, thank you. Again, th thanks so much. And I think you're, you're really hitting on one of the primary reasons that I wrote it and, oh, wow. and, and a way in which I hope for it to have an impact. Um, that Yes, in some ways, stigma has decreased over time, decreased over the years, um, but it is still so much higher. 
than it should be. And our healthcare system does such a poor job of acknowledging any mental health issues, let alone the, the, the complexities that are often underlying them, or acknowledging that more than half of our physical health complaints, more than half, come from a mental health um, place, you know, arise from mental health issues. So, so yes, we, we need to understand this because otherwise, you know, people not only say that to other people, right, but they're saying that to themselves, right? Like, right. what's wrong with me that I'm not over this? And, and the self-talk inside of us can be terrible, right? It can be just awful and demeaning to ourselves, right, uh, about this, this impact. So we, we need to understand that it is real, that it is science-based. And, and so often, how we interact in the world and what we see as true it d does runs far behind where science leads us right so yeah. i think to spread the word that like these brain changes are real they don't just go away because time passes i mean absolutely not they don't just go away because we want them to right they they will only change if we face them and if we do the right things to, to make them go away, right? Which we see in clinical practice all the time. It's not that, oh, this is esoteric and no one gets better or like somehow we realize there's trauma after, you know, months and months and then we come at that in some oblique way. I mean, you know, we, we can come at this very directly and make changes that have not happened before. And I cite all sorts of examples about this in the book and also, you know, in conversations like this, that, you know, people I've seen who've had five, six, seven rehab stays you know, potentially for drugs and alcohol or directly for mental health, and no one's taken a, a trauma history. No one has addressed trauma. And when we do that, when we essentially go where the money's at, right, like that yeah. problem is, then we see very significant very significant change. So this isn't esoteric or pie in the sky. It's, it's actually, it's rooted in the basics of clinical practice and science, and it makes a direct difference in people's lives. Yeah, it really does. I have a friend who was in a, a hospital for two years. I don't know if they call them a psychiatric hospital. And I said, well, what did they do? And they're like, not much. I was like, well, did they address your trauma? No. Then well, they gave me medication, which I'm all for, you know, in the right circumstances, obviously. Right. But I was thinking, what, do you, what did you do for a year? She's like, not much. Sat around in my pajamas. And I was like, oh, my God, that is horrendous. Like, how did they not ask you about your trauma i think unfortunately as a society you know we very often look for quick fixes right and you right. see this in the world around us you know we we know that there are huge infrastructure problems um but we don't invest in it we put the money towards something else then where there's a problem we say oh my goodness like now, now something happened a bridge collapsed or what and and now we want to put resources towards it and blame you know, everyone else, right, except except ourselves, acknowledging, hey, as a society, we are not prioritizing what is most important to us. And, and we certainly do this in healthcare. Yeah. It requires people time, right, in order to talk about trauma. It requires something other than, you know, a 15-minute mental health visit um, or a very rare insurance-authorized, you know, limited number psychotherapy visits in order to make real change. So if, we, if we're going to throw medicines at everything, and I'm all for medicines, as you said, in the right circumstance. But if we're going to look the other way, go for short-term fixes, try and um, just treat the symptoms that are most at the surface with medicines, then we shouldn't expect that anything is 
going to change, right? And then once is both human in terms of human misery and loss of life and the cascade. I mean, the reason I write about it as an epidemic, the cascade of trauma from one person to another and the growing anger and frustration and acting out that we see in our society. You know, I think this is all part of the short-term view of things. And and if we can sort of pull ourselves together and say, hey, we, we need to approach life differently, right? We need to look at the big picture, whether it's our infrastructure or it's climate change or it's how we handle political dialogue or how we handle our health. You know, the short term, let's just, you know, as I, I, I say very frequently, that we, we, we polish the hood when there's a problem in the engine. And if we keep doing this, then things don't get better, they get worse. And I think we are seeing that too in, you know, the, the, the terrifying rise in suicide rates in this country. Right, losing a hundred thousand people to overdose deaths in a year. I mean, we can't but look at it and, and think, hey, something is really wrong here. I mean, I don't think that's not subtle, right? It's, yeah. What are we going to decide to do about it? And I think by looking at the, the trauma that's in many of us, it's cascading impact in societies and the fact that we can make it better. We just have to prioritize that. I think that's really a way that we can change the course of our future, right? We can change. Yes. Heading. Yeah, we absolutely need to. I have a friend in prison. He gets 15 to 20 minutes of therapy once a month. He really needs help. <laughs> That's one of the reasons he's in there. Right. I think they're all examples of how we polish the hood and call it good when right. there's a problem in the engine, right? And it's yeah. not good. And you know, when you talk about being in a psychiatric hospital, you know, not getting it, not getting psychotherapy help, or you know, someone who's in prison and is, gets 15 minutes a month. I mean, what what could that possibly do? Nothing. Then we're surprised when, oh, someone's depression is back or someone has relapsed right. to drugs or alcohol or someone has committed another crime after they come out of prison. It's like being surprised that the car isn't running well when we just decided to polish the hood, right? Yep. I mean, we sort of feign surprise and we look around for who's responsible. And I think the answer is we're responsible, right? Because of how we're handling our, our societal choices um, and it impacts all of us. You know, you, you share four vignettes in the book, and I'd like to focus uh, on the one on sexual assault. And you write, quote, I have taken care of more people who have been sexually assaulted than I could ever count, and the trauma they experience reaches into every facet of their lives. The majority of women I know who've been sexually assaulted, and there are many, it just continues the PTSD or even if they don't have PTSD, right? Uh, the way they see themselves, their fear, their looking over their shoulder, their memories. I mean, it's just so traumatic and so misunderstood. So I would love for you to focus on that story out of those four. I mean, they were all very powerful, by the way. Sure. I, mean, I think it's an example of where a place where we do really kind of the worst job right that yeah that the the reflex so remember that trauma makes a reflex of guilt and shame and because sexual trauma and sexual assault is so emotionally loaded in in a person and in society the the reflex of guilt and shame is often so much stronger right and the feeling of the need to hide it away Right? And then as the person is hiding it away, all sorts of thoughts and constructs come around it. So how many times have I seen someone who was sexually assaulted years ago, right? And their, their life is 
different since then, but they have not talked about it, and they're carrying with them, oh, it was my fault, I should have done something different, uh, no one will ever love me, I'll never have a good relationship, and they're going over and over in a person's head because they've been unchallenged, right, that, that there aren't mechanisms around us that would say, look, we understand how to address this and how to help someone understand this. And, and you know, when a person's response to, to, to talking about, wow, like, I can understand what's going on inside of you, right? There are changes in your brain that create this reflex of guilt and shame and anxiety and fear and hide it away. And then from that position, it festers. And now you start making different life decisions, right? So now maybe instead of dating new people, right, that person stays at home, right? And and then laments that they're not good enough, quote unquote, to have a relationship, right? But they're hiding at home, right? Yeah. Or they're not performing as well in their job, or they're not seeking, you know, uh, improvements in their job. Job, and then they feel bad about themselves because the career isn't progressing and maybe friendships and family relationships are deteriorating and and a person can have this is not uncommon this change throughout their life right so it's writ large in their life and somewhere they know that like everything was different after this thing that happened right but but there's there's not a sense of empowerment to go do something about it, right? Because there's not a sense that there's help to be had or understanding to be had. And when you think about how tragic that is, right? The, the, the misery that it creates in a person, the lost opportunity that it creates in a person, and sometimes the risk to life that it creates in a person, I, I think that is just really what is shameful is that we as a society do not do a better job of understanding what happens to people in situations like this and then helping them, even if we just thought of it on the most basic level, right, which sometimes we do in this country and, and in other places too, we just think about money, right, we think about right. dollars and cents, even if we just looked at it that way and we thought, well, how much more functional are people in the world around us, in in producing for the economy, right, when they're healthy. Even the, the concept of like presenteeism, right? right? People are going to work, but they're depressed, or they're addicted, or they're afraid, and, and they're, they're so underperforming, right? Even if we just looked at it in terms of dollars and cents, but we didn't look with the short term, oh, the dollars and cents at the end of this week, right, or the end of this quarter, right? Yeah. If we looked at ourselves as a society and invested in us, right, which hopefully one would think we would do because we value ourselves each of us as human beings but even if we just did that from an economic perspective we would overhaul how we treat trauma yeah you know the the friend i mentioned to was in the psychiatric hospital was molested at seven and told her mother her mother didn't believe her mm -hmm. yeah. and then she's had an eating disorder for years and severe body dysmorphia i mean she's right. skinny as you can be and just sees a fat person in the mirror and, and mm -hmm. you know, so much of that I'm sure stems from that early trauma and, and, you know, eating disorders or gambling or drug addiction, sex addiction, you know, drinking the whole thing, right. There's like this, this other thing. And I think with an eating disorder, there's that sense of control. Well, I'm going to have control over this. And you can tell me more. I mean, that's just my sense from what I've read. And I, I read a lot because of, of her. Um, and it's just such a difficult thing. Like you just, you can't, talk somebody out of an eating disorder or a lot of these things right and if you go to the trauma that's at the that's at the root right then right. potentially people can change right but what you're describing you know is just it's a problem in 
humans that our society then exacerbates, right? This, right. this idea that we will choose the sort of short-term soothing, right, at the expense of the, the long-term goal, right, if we don't have a better option, right? So, so impulsivity, whether it's gambling, sex, food, right? It's a desire to just feel better in the moment, right? right. Even though, you know, you know, the person knows like this isn't good for me across time, right? And yeah. they know maybe those last several times that they started drinking again, you know, where did that end up, right? But there's such a desperation for things to change and a sense of hopelessness, right? And you see that whether it's a person who's relapsing or it's a person who is now depressed again, right? Or it's the desire for for control that can come through an eating disorder, right? It's, you know, yeah. in the short term, one can then control, right, what is going into their body, right? right? But it's at the expense of long-term control, right? Because it's not it's not a healthy and robust way to face life, right? It doesn't help a person be at their best and feel empowered. So, you know, if we don't help people have ways of really addressing their trauma, what is going on in, inside of them, if people feel hopeless and afraid and ashamed, then of course the short-term soothing mechanisms have appeal. That is just a human response. And again, how surprised can we be about that? It's like being yeah. surprised that the prisoner who got 15 minutes of therapy a month, you know, didn't get much out of it. A lot of it is just common sense, right? And and doing what I do for a living and seeing the impact of trauma and the terrible human cost and the societal cost and the economic cost, it's just common sense to say, oh my goodness, we could be doing this so much better. And the data is there telling us, the data of how awful adverse childhood experiences are, yes. right? Experiences that can age us. So, so think about this, age our DNA beyond our years. Right? You wow. can say, well, that person's 35 years old or that person's 65 years old, but really their DNA is not 35, it's 40 years old. The DNA is not 65, it's made more like 72. I mean, imagine, right, that this is, we know this is a scientifically valid impact of trauma that we age faster than the calendar. I mean, it's just one example that would say, hey, how can we not look at this and what it is doing to us? Yeah. You know, my mother had a lot of health problems, and she had a pretty traumatic childhood, and she had a, a mother who was bipolar who wouldn't take her medication, so she was in and out of institutions, and it was very difficult, and she ended up, when she was around 40, covered head to toe in rashes, they couldn't figure it out, and then she had fibromyalgia, and then she died of ovarian cancer at 57, and it was just such a, it was, and I, I really feel like her pain and her trauma are connected, right? The physical pain, yes. the emotional issues. And even when she was fighting the cancer, like she did Western medicine, she did Eastern medicine, she did alternative medicine, her entire bed was covered with all these different supplements. But I don't, she never really did the emotional work. And I feel like if she had, I'm not saying she'd be here, but that part was just not dealt with, I think. I think it was just too much. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to deal with that hard emotional work. Sure. So if we don't do that, we, we predispose ourselves to so many problems. You know, the, the weight of chronic trauma in us, just one example, impacts our immune system. So immune system dysfunction means we're then much more likely to have autoimmune diseases, right? Yeah. This being one, just, just one example. But there are many, many autoimmune diseases across the spectrum that are then, they are a function of immune system dysfunction.
Right. So, so meaning they can be a direct cause, right? As can various pain syndromes, right? Then end up being a direct cause of trauma, right? Yeah. And the the same then is is true if the the trauma is in us and we're not aware of it, right? The immune system's dysfunction can, for example, decrease surveillance for cancer cells, right? Or the immune system's the ability to exercise vigilance and then fight off or destroy cancer cells. So to say that, hey, all of this dysfunction in us promotes uh, heart attacks, strokes, autoimmune diseases, cancer, like it's, it's not only is that not just blindly conjectural, but the, but the science tells us that that's true. Yeah, I knew a woman who just had the most horrific, every kind of abuse you can have from a very young age, and she's chronically ill. She's chronically in pain. She went to Mayo Clinic for five days. They couldn't find anything wrong with her. And what I'm, there's a difference between a hypochondriac and somebody who really is in pain. They just can't figure it out, and that's right. because it's tied to trauma. And that's a big problem, too, because and I'm not saying anything negative about the Mayo Clinic. They did their best. But when it's trauma-based and they're not looking at that or other facilities aren't looking for that, then the problem just continues. And I'm sure you've seen that in people, I would imagine. Oh, so over and over and over again. A significant part of my work has been at the intersection of, of psychological things and, and general medical things. Right. You see, so basically the mind and the body, right? And you see what the mind can do in the body is tremendous. You know, the trauma can make a person, now that person is, it becomes blind for some period of time because of something traumatic they saw or paralyzes a limb because of something traumatic. I mean, these are extreme examples, but they happen, yeah. right? So, so very clearly anything in the middle, right, anything that's less than those things can happen too, right? Which really yeah. opens up to just about anything that can happen in our bodies. And again, we know this to be true, but we sort of look the other way. I mean, if you think about how at least half of all physical health complaints right, are coming from a mental health origin, yet right. mental health is so split off from physical health. It makes no sense. It's, it's not just that it, it shouldn't be seen as, oh, that's a specialty, right, that you refer to. That it's, it's really the bottom of the pyramid of, of primary care. And what ends up happening is the primary care doctors then are the first line of defense, right? They're, they're, they're the first people the, the patients see. And, and I mean, how many? I, I know and have and also taken care of you know, so many primary care doctors. And, and, you know, they're fighting the same thing where they're, they're trying to help people, but they're not the mental health provider. They're trying to figure out, is it physical? Is it mental? They don't have the time or the resources to do the mental health part of it. And then, what did they, then you know, you see, okay, that person just not helped enough or they're sent for a bunch of tests they don't need or that the primary care doc is trying to do the mental health part and pres prescribe medicines which is again all very laudable but the toll that it takes on the primary care doctors is terrible yeah and and then the patients aren't being suitably helped and it's like hey this is obvious in front of us but you know we still don't do anything about it so dr conti when i was in my 20s so my mother passed away from ovarian cancer. And then six months later, my beloved grandfather, her dad passed away. And then three months after that, a seven-year relationship broke up. And then three months after that, my dad remarried. And I had this sense of like, this is my life now. Like, I, if I try to be happy, the, the other shoe is going to drop. And that happens to people too, when you go through a lot. Of, I mean, it was just like nonstop. Right. And it, right. it can really just throw you off balance and kind of make you less trustful of, 
of things. I think that if I'm understanding you correctly, basically the stigma that you took inside, so the self-stigma of like, oh, something is wrong with me or my life or my fate, and, and yes. things I don't get to have things go well. Right, because my childhood was already really hard. <laughs> and having a chronically ill mother that my sister and I had to take care of and a very busy out-of-the-house dad doing things for the community, which is great, and he was, a, you know, he's a great man, but we had a lot of issues going on, and so then to go from that, and then I always, growing up, I, I was made fun of, and I would just never felt good about myself, and then college was great. I was like, oh, wow, okay. And then after college, everything kind of went to hell. So now it's good. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like this up and down and feeling like when you experience a lot of trauma as a kid, it also clouds the way you see things because it changes your brain, as you mentioned. Right. Right. And what you're describing now is is what my ear hears is sort of a life narrative. Like, oh, like I had these difficulties growing up, right? Right. And I persevered and there were more difficulties and I got myself to college and like, wait, things can go well because they they went well there, right? Yeah. Putting a a longitudinal narrative that that sounds to me like that's empowering. Surprise me. I mean, now look at what you're doing in life, right? I mean, you're doing something that's empowered. So you clearly have arrived at a place of empowerment, but it's by putting that, all of the things that happened into perspective. How many chances, so to speak, along the way were there for you to stop at like, oh, things just don't go well for me, or I'm fated to never having what I want, or I'm cursed, or whatever else it is that you or I at times have thought in our lives. And like, that's, there's a danger that like, that becomes the story. And the person forgets. I mean, how many people have I talked to with a, a narrative sort of similar to what you just said, right? But they forgot that they ever had college ever went well. Right, their their narrative might be my, nothing in my life has ever gone well. Right, I've never and this is you know say a person who suffered from depression or addiction or panic attacks or whatever it may be. Right, who then has a life narrative that got stuck at some point. Right, yeah, and then that changes then the memories because our, our memories. No, our memories only have meaning when there's the emotional part of our brain, which is called the limbic system, you know, applies itself. to. So then the memories change. So if you had gotten sort of stuck at a certain point, you could look back at college and feel very negative about it. Your brain can back map. If nothing ever goes well for me, I never get what I want. Then the brain, okay, that maps that absolute. And then the person feels differently about it. And often it's only by talking about trauma, taking the history, you know, having the person talk about their narrative, they can even remember like, oh my goodness, like I loved college and I felt hopeful, right? Just imagine like that lots of people forget and they're not really forgetting, right? It's, it's trauma and the guilt and the shame and the fear and the hiding everything away. And then the painting with a broad brush about like, you know, be feeling cursed or life can never go well, which of course is more predisposed in a person if there's early childhood trauma, right? So, you know, you can see how that can get to a point where a person's story of themselves doesn't match their own history and is really seen through the lens of of stigma and faded. It's time for me to talk about the wonderful sponsor this month. 
athletic greens. I started taking AG1 because I don't like taking pills and vitamins. I wanted a supplement that tastes great, a light, tropical, mild flavor. I start my day with AG1. With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole foods, source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. This helps with your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system. I notice I have more energy. I have more focus. What I love about it, too, is that it's lifestyle-friendly. So whether we keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, it costs less than $3 a day. You're investing in your health, and it's cheaper than your cold brew habit. And speaking of habits, AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. On here in Health Power, that's what I want you to do. I want to give you the tools to help you take care of yourself, and that's why I'm so excited about AG1. Now, to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash power. Again, that is athleticgreens.com slash power to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Yeah, I had therapy, trust me, <laughs> a lot. How important that is, right? Because then yes. you knit it together, it provides sort of a safety net so you don't get like fall right. into the hole of what's bad at the moment and yeah. then from in that hole be unable to see out of it, right? But how many people don't? know that. They don't have access to those resources. Even True. in case of an acute trauma, they may have been to an emergency room or been hospitalized and, and still no one says anything about it, even within the healthcare system. And then they leave with those changes that are never revisited. I mean, I, I just think that's among the most awful and tragic things I can imagine. Like it didn't have to be that way. It yeah. wasn't even consistent with the facts of the person's own life, but years pass or sometimes years don't pass if the person doesn't make it. Right. And it was all avoidable which is why i write in the book at times of what was on people's death certificate versus what really yes yeah talk more about that i was going to bring that up it's fascinating and heartbreaking it just kind of learned i mean i didn't decide to think of it that way i just kind of you know naturally came about where we we, we was taking care of a lot of people at a certain point in time many of whom were you know, we're quite ill. We're up against a lot of challenges um, with a high volume of, of people in that situation. And, you know, and some of them died. They died while under my care or died, you know, at another point in time, I became aware of it. And and then you'd see, like, what, what they died of versus what was really going on inside of them. You know, that person yeah. who died of an overdose, you know, I, I know died from that rape. Right, you know the person who who died from a, a car accident. You know, I, I know they died from the recklessness that came after the tr- combat trauma when they were in the military. Right, and and you can just look and see, and even sometimes with medical issues. Oh, that person had three different significant medical problems and then they had a stroke and they were pretty young and and i can back map to right i know what that trauma was doing inside of them you know to mind and body so um so i have found that always to be very sad and also that society just kind of accepts well that's you know put in the statistics of how their actual physical death came right and then we don't have to look at right how did they get there and are we really performing our responsibility to one another 
in society yeah. if we let this you need to clone yourself you have to be like everywhere because you're just the work you do dr kati is so incredible I, I probably should have brought this up earlier but you talk about different types of trauma and post-trauma syndromes acute chronic vicarious and uh, post-trauma syndromes i just want to say i've done a show on racism anti-racism bias white privilege called active allyship it's more than a hashtag it's still up we're just taking a break i'm having surgery this summer and some other on my foot and some other things but we're coming back in the fall and I was so happy that you put racism in the book because I don't think people understand, well, white people, um, how microaggressions and these mass shootings and, you know, I can go to the grocery store. I don't think twice that someone's going to kill me, mm-hmm. but my black friends just it's so heartbreaking. And so just that you recognize that, I just am so glad you put that in the book. Yes, yes. Well, you're very welcome, and thank you for noting something that I think is so important, and I'll emphasize again, is scientifically based. So yes. We know changes happen in our brain after trauma. Now, it's, it's much easier to understand that if there's been an acute trauma, right? A loss of a loved one or an right. attack, right? But those same brain changes can come from chronic trauma. And it's more like, you know, when I was growing up, I don't know why people said this, people would talk about, oh, that's the soup you're swimming in, right? I don't know yeah. why we're all swimming in soup. <laughs> For some people, it's, it's more than just like, because microaggressions, you know, again, at least the way I think of that is like, oh, a person's kind of going through life and, and people are showing aggression intermittently, right? Yeah. Which I think is, in a sense, I think what's happening is, is more than that, right? The, the soup that the person is swimming in, you know, 24-7 is a soup of less than, right? Yes. Soup being seen in a way that's denigrating or being seen in a way that the person is worth less, right? right. I mean, bad things could happen to them more readily and society is sort of okay with it, right? I yeah. Mean, this is terrible, right? I mean, this is the kind of chronic trauma that is inculcating into a person moment by moment. And sure, microaggressions or reminders that the person is seen as less than, right, right. Can, can be, can be you know, very focal and un- unpleasant in the moment, right? But what's really going on, I think, is going on across time. And right. It can be about race, it can be about gender identity or sexuality, I mean, or socioeconomic status. I mean, there's so many ways this can be. I think race has understandably really been at the forefront. But how do we not look at, how does it feel to somebody to go through life and to just be seen as less than? How how does that impact someone? Then we're surprised if, you know, if there are brain changes that come from that. Yeah, and I think again, there's a common sense to it. Of course, that happens to someone, or that, that of course, a person in that situation is at high risk for that. Right. right. And if we don't look at what are the chronic traumas that we're imposing upon people, again, we will continue to spread the epidemic of trauma. You know, you have two great interviews in the book, uh, one with Stephanie Zhu uh, Guttenberg. She's a dedicated advocate for children, well-known for chi- uh, fighting child abuse in the U.S. and also in Germany. And then you also talk with the Dr. Dan Reicherter? Uh, Darren Richarder. Darren Richarder, yeah. I am people who listen to the show know I cannot pronounce things. How do you pronounce that last name? Uh, Richarder. Oh, Richard. Okay. And he talks about what trauma does to individual brains, which you've touched on. And then we also touched on the child abuse. I thought it was really interesting. Why did you decide to have those conversations in the book? 
Sure. I wanted real experts in right. areas where I am not a real real expert, right? I mean, do, do I know something about trauma across societies and generations? Yes. Sure. But, but Darren is a professor at Stanford who runs a trauma lab and has done not only research, but clinical work around the world and has testified um, at uh, courts, uh, the UN courts in Europe, and um, and, and really understands, right? Understands yeah. the impact that, that trauma changes DNA, right? It changes how DNA is passed on even years and years after trauma. So, so trauma can change how DNA is passed on to a child that is conceived years after. Research like Darren's that combines with his clinical work that gives him a purview of, oh, this, we're not talking about a one-time event and then afterwards people should get over that, right? right? Like we hear all the time, right? But we're talking about an event that changes that person, not only going forward in their own life, but across generations. So Darren then is, is, is an expert looking at the big picture, right? And and Stephanie von Gutenberg is an expert looking at child trauma. And I'm not a child practitioner, so again, do I know something about it? Sure. Uh, but but she has the expertise in how trauma impacts children, right? And, and yeah. also around preventive efforts and preventive measures. Because of course, the earlier the trauma, the greater it's impact and we know yeah. that through the studies about adverse childhood experiences like we know all that but to have experts kind of bookending what happens in children right and what happens across generations what i i felt would allow for a book that truly was then complete well i mean the book is phenomenal i want to mention that you you also have some great advice to help you have for example the accomplice is shame the anecdote is uncovering self-talk uh, then you have another anecdote, we are attributing shame. Then you have accomplice, poor self-care, anecdote, clarifying what people deserve. I mean, it's just, you have risk-taking behaviors, reviewing motivations, poor sleep, and then relaxing body and mind. I mean, you really help out. You know, I actually, turn, I mean, I did have fun in college, but I also <laughs> was using sex as a way to escape my problems in college and beyond for many years, actually. And, and at the, in, the, in the moment, it was great. I wasn't thinking about stuff. I felt wanted and loved. Because I'd you know been neglected, and so it, that was so important to me, yes. and also always feeling like a loser and unattractive and weird, and um, now I embrace my weirdness. But anyway, so yeah, it took me a while to get out of that cycle, right? And so I, this would have been so helpful to me, and I know it's it must be so helpful to other people. Talk just a little bit about some of these things that can help us with our trauma. Sure. And while the science behind it is very complicated, and of course how our brains and bodies work are very complicated, so much of like what there is to actually do about it is is much less complicated. And, and, and some of it even, I think, falls into common sense that we don't necessarily use in the mental health field all the time. I think the things that are pretty basic of, you know, of like, what is the self-talk inside of us? This is the idea of writing antidotes. Like, here's a common problem, right? What might be an antidote to that? or way, right. way of understanding it, right? And and often we don't do that, you know, and after my own trauma, and there have been several very significant traumas throughout my life. Um, some have happened since I had mental health training, but in the ones that happened beforehand, you know, I, I didn't know these things. You know, no one was telling me, oh, pay attention to what's going on in your head. So what was going on in my head changed. 
right? right. Change like, oh, you'll never get anywhere, and you know, life is going to be awful. And like, I didn't realize that change. Like, it would be good if if I had a book or somebody pointed out, like, hey, like think about it. What's going on inside of you? How might that have changed? What's going on in your self care? How might that have changed? How are you communicating with others? Right? Um, what things that are gratifying in your life are you now maybe doing too much of? Right? In order to soothe in the short term, because there's something you feel that's hanging over you in the longer term. So, you know, the, the idea is for the book to be very practical, for it to have examples and stories you know, for my own life and life of people I know or have taken care of that, that, it, that people can res- resonate with people, either because they can relate to it or if they can't, they can, oh, I can see how that happened, right? And then to have some very basic guidance about how to take care of ourselves and how to have sort of the long view of ourselves, right? Yeah. As opposed to our brains attaching to whatever that thing is we don't like about ourselves or others have not uh, uh, liked or valued in us. And then we build the story of ourself about that and we build the narrative about that around that, right? So the idea of getting in touch with some very basic principles, you know, like gaining knowledge, right? And using the knowledge to make our lives better and that that leads to hopefulness, right? That we can ground ourselves to what we understand from basic religious values, not always how religion is practiced, right? right. But the values within religions, right? The the knowledge we have from science and medicine, um, the knowledge we have from even early childhood education. I mean, how much that we learned in kindergarten do we not see displayed in the world around us? Right, sometimes in our own lives, or sometimes in people's behavior, you yeah. know, when you know, we see political arguments, or we see things that don't fit even a kindergarten standard of decorum, and and this idea that like, let's anchor to the things that we know to be true, our own life experience, right, early childhood education, religious values, right, that that there are some basic and common sense strategies we can use for ourselves and ways that we can frame how we're going to be in the world around us that I think it makes so much sense to anchor to. It's the other side of the coin where so much of it is so complicated and that's fascinating to try and understand more about our brains and how our brains change and how we can change them back. But then there's there's the other end of the spectrum where a lot of what we can do is actually pretty straightforward, which is why a person doesn't need a tremendous amount of resources or the person has to afford twice weekly therapy for a year. Like the there are things we can do to help ourselves that don't require that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I do want to bring up a story. I mean, there's so many, but, oh, this one was so heartbreaking. The woman who you were who with the eating disorder, and they yes. they always locked the bathrooms, yes. but you yes. got through to her and were like, okay, I, I, I'm, I'm not going to lock, because she felt like she had to purge. I'm not going to lock the bathroom. Tell us about what happened. And this is what one of the issues with the medical establishment and their flipping rules, right? Like, sometimes you've right. got to just talk to the doctor and see what the hell's going on, but. Go ahead. Right. There's so many rules beyond rules. I mean, I think throughout life, is, is right. many, many of which really make no sense. And, and the idea that, well, if a person has an eating disorder, now they're in a hospital, right, and they're, and they're being treated and they're purging, right? So they're vomiting, right? Right. That, though you should lock their bathroom. I mean, that's not a uniform rule. I mean, in some cases, that makes sense, right? The person, you could lie with the person around it. Can it be a deterrent? Does it help them think twice, right? But then there are other situations where that doesn't make sense. That person is going to do that behavior and it's ridiculous and it's hubris to think I'm going to make them not by, by locking the door. So, so like anything else, there's no one size fits all. They got to think about the person, right? Um, and th- this was a person that made no sense to lock that door. 
right? That was not going to stop that person from doing the things that she was doing. It was only, you know, mental health care across time, the kind of things that are very hard to get that could really be helpful. And I was trying to do that and, and form an alliance with her by saying, yeah, I'm not going to lock your door. Like, let's talk about how I can help you be healthier, but I'm not trying to take over control. Think about it. It's about control and eating disorder. Now right. I'm going to come in, you just met me two minutes ago and I'm going to take control, right? I mean, that's not going to work, right? No. So, so unfortunately, uh, the orders got changed back to the standard orders. They're like, oh, everyone with an eating disorder has their bathroom blocked. And this woman who was very ill, right, in, in many ways, not this eating disorder, but other, other ways too, felt that, you know, I had lied to her. I betrayed her. I told her I wasn't going to lock the door, and then I did, right? I mean, that's how she yeah. saw it as you came in here, and you were reasonable with me, and we had some accord. Like, we kind of got along okay, right? And then you left, and did exactly the opposite right so uh, so yes hence the, the very large bag of vomit uh that she had you know, that she had filled up was was swung at me and uh oh and made it full made full contact and it's really i mean it is true you know that that um, that, that happened and and i think like look, i found that to be quite traumatic. I hope it hasn't changed my brain. It hasn't been to the level of changing my brain as I go forward, but in the small T version of traumatic, like, was that awful? Did it make me feel less safe at work? Yes. Was it just, you know, I have trouble getting it out of my mind? Yes. Did it seem bizarre that I had somebody watching while now I'm in the patient's shower trying to get oh off? Like, it was, you know, so much of it was awful, but, but think about who cares really? I mean, I'm okay. Her having this experience of, you know, her experience was you lied to me. And, and really, if you look at you as the system, the system did lie to her. And then, of course, there were all sorts of negatives for her because now she assaulted her doctor. And there's a bunch of other rules that come into play. And, and you know, what chance did we really have of helping her on the other side of all of that? And and I think it's just, it's an element of how, like, short-sighted right and a whole bunch of rules and algorithms don't work for healthcare they certainly don't work for mental health care like if we're not going to think and we're not going to approach people as people how can we expect to help them and not only do we not help them we end up inadvertently harming them like i think we left that woman worse off than when she came in the door did you ever get to speak with her again or say I didn't change a lot or it was just kind of too late? It was just too because of the condition that that point wasn't going to be made. And then, it was, you know, she needed a different physician. The, the relationship was, you know, was not going to be repaired. That's such a hard situation. It was hard for you. It's hard for her. And if they had just listened, you know, instead of just being like, well, this is the way we do things with everybody. And, and that's the other thing, too, is like we're all individuals. Right. And, and often, too, like the people who worked on that unit with me were great people, like really great people. It, the, the problem is, you know, it's often further up, right? The, the right. So rules and they're made. I mean, you think about how our healthcare systems work and our health insurance systems work. I mean, it's, there's nothing about that that's like, well, let's start with the priority of taking care of people. Rules are coming from a place no one knows. And, you know, they're, well, that's the standard. Now that becomes, you know, an immutable, right, across the board. And, and it, none of it makes any sense if, if we don't stop and think about what we're doing. I mean, it doesn't make any sense when we're doing something simple. We're doing complex things like trying to navigate our lives. Yeah, well, it's so hard, too, because, you know, like, I have a, I know somebody who has um, DID, which used to be uh, multiple personality disorder, dissociative identity disorder, and to find a therapist that works with that is so much more expensive than just a regular therapist. I understand that it's a specialization, and but 
it's just it's so unaffordable for so many people oh sure the the, the mental health care we're providing is at the in, in general right i mean obviously right. if you look across health systems insurance systems it is so dumbed down right it's like it's there's a presumption that you you have the lowest possible problem right like okay let's let's talk you tell me some symptoms i'll give you a medicine for your symptoms you'll feel better like that that's the, that's the paradigm i mean how do you help somebody whose issues are complicated dissociative identity disorder it's not like a person can't be helped but my goodness people have to think about that they have to communicate about that they have to do therapy from different perspectives across time they have to utilize medicines judiciously you know that might shift over time i mean it's complicated and if the system is designed you know for just throughput right it's like a drive-through right i mean it says hey you got a little menu choose from it here you right. give you the bag you're gone i mean how do we how do we think we're really helping people like that and i think the answer is like we don't right if you really look at it is we just sort of pretend that well people can get mental health care they can go to emergency rooms if they really need help and like that's just not true i mean there's a whole part of society and this is including people i mean unfortunately people in lower socioeconomic demographics but it includes people in mid-range and high socioeconomic demographics who just simply don't get taken care of often even if the problem is simple let alone or straightforward right let alone if the problem is complex that's the answer is like oh it, care doesn't happen and then if there's a bad outcome people say oh gosh shane that person had a heart attack or this or that happened right we don't look at like no no right that came from a place of unresolved trauma of our healthcare system and our society looking the other way and it was very predictable that this is what was going to happen and then you know we shrug and go back to whatever we were doing as a society We've got to get on board, Dr. Conti. Everybody, I mean, God, we got to shift this the paradigm the way it is now and, and, and do what you're talking about in your book. Again, trauma, the invisible epidemic, how trauma works and how we can heal from it. This is a must-read book, the four words by Lady Gaga. I love when she was like, nope, where's a real doctor? Or she says something like that, right? Because <laughs> you're a psychiatrist. Yeah. Now, Dr. Conti, is there anything you want to add? And you're always welcome back. I mean, there's so much we didn't get to. I mean, we could do a whole series. You're just incredible. Thank you. Thank you so much. I, you know, I think my, my last word would be that there is always hope. I mean, I think so many times people just feel hopeless, right? Yeah. And to know that there's, there's so much that can be done, whatever it is that we're facing. It may not be easy to, uh, to get the help we need, but the help is there. And, and that means there is hope. And, and for, you know, if you're feeling no hope to, to think like, who can I reach out to? Who can be helpful to me? Right? There, there are resources, again, even if there aren't a lot of them, they're not easy to access, to not give up on hope. Because when a person gives up on hope, they're giving up on themselves. And you know, it's never justified. Yeah, you know, when I was going through the my mom dying, my grandpa dying, my you know relationship breaking up, that movie Hope Floats came out, and I was like, oh, that stupid movie. I didn't even see it. I'm like, what a stupid movie, Hope Floats. I can't believe it. Um, but then I did find my hope. So <laughs> I was in that space for a while. You know, you're just like, oh, everything's terrible. But things change. That's the thing with life, right? It's never steady it's, it's always inside of us right if we do think there's no hope right we're not aware that it's there inside of us right which i think is a very heartening and hopeful message right although i did see the movie and i didn't like it but maybe if i re <laughs> i mean i think i saw it in a better headspace and i'm still like no but that could I, who knows maybe i carried that with me again dr conti your book trauma the invisible epidemic is so good can we find you on social media i tried to find you i couldn't find you are you not on 
Well, primarily, th th there's a, a LinkedIn page and there'll be an Instagram page that just directs really to the website. But I, I'm not I'm choosing to, to get the message out there in really other ways. There's a website for me. It's just Dr. Paul Conti. So D-R and then my name. So D-R-P-A-U-L-C-O-N-T-I. So drpaulconti.com, which, which has links to some of the media, like this will be up there and other oh, podcasts or interviews I've done. And it's got links to where a person can buy the book. So that's that's really how I'm, I'm doing the publicizing through routes like this and just through that website. Oh, great. I mean, because everyone's got to read this book. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you. And we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.